And as you are, you can turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17. Uh, just a reminder for those of you who have uh, children and youth, we do have folders uh, available for them. Pam Hobson has worked very hard to make those happen, and they are a great resource for our youngest of worshipers to be more involved in, in this portion of our worship. So I encourage you to grab one of those or, or reach out to Pam uh, to get one. Um, fair warning here, uh, I'm going to ask for patience. Our, our passage is four verses long, which makes it four times longer than last week's passage. <laughs> so I will be asking for patience. Yes. Uh, Matthew chapter 17, we're looking at the end of it, verses 24 to 27. Hear now God's word for his people. When they, the disciples and Jesus, came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, well, Yes. And he came, when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him, Peter, first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? Jesus said, uh, sorry, when he said, from others, Jesus said, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Not too many passages have coins in the mouths of fish. Uh, as I was kind of studying up on, on this passage this week and meditating on it, I, I, I started thinking about um, golf. I, I played a round of golf with my friends um, recently, and I was reminded that there's a, there's a twin truth when it comes to the game of golf. I've heard it described as an endless series of tragedies obscured by the occasional miracle. And if you've ever seen me play, that is absolutely applies to me. Um, and yet, I'm struck by when I was out on the golf course, there were so many people there. Some people doing better than others, but despite the misery, there were so many people there. And so I started thinking, is this miserable or is this fun? Because based on my experience, this is miserable. And yet, I'm going to go back. Is it miserable or is it fun? The answer is both. There's a twin truth. Then I thought about parenting. <sighs> yeah, you know where I'm going. So ask, ask a certain parent. Parenting's the hardest thing you will ever do. Ask that same parent later on in the week. Parenting is the most rewarding thing you will ever do, right? Which one is it, parents? Both, of course. It's both. It's not something that contradicts itself. It's a twin truth. Two things true at the same time. But as I was thinking about it, my favorite of these came later in the week. Um, it's actually tomatoes. I think tomatoes most closely apply to this passage. Uh, ask a scientist what a tomato is, and they will tell you it's a fruit. It's a fruit. Botanically speaking, a tomato is a fruit. Ask anyone not a scientist, and they will tell you. No, it's a vegetable. You use it in salsas. You don't put tomato in a fruit salad. 
tomato's a vegetable based on how it functions. A tomato functions like a vegetable, but if, if you're looking at the core of what a tomato is, it is indeed a fruit. Are those contradictory? No. They are twin truths, things that you must hold together at the same time. These are not instances when you're choosing right or wrong, correct or incorrect. You're talking about things that are true at the same time. And in order to navigate these muddy waters, you need context and you need wisdom. We have a a twin truth in our passage this morning. We are told that we are free in Christ and yet we are bound in love. Again, these do not contradict one another. But in order to hold them both at the same time, in order to resolve this tension, we need godly wisdom and context. So first, let's look at how we are free in Christ before looking at how we are bound in love. If you look at our passage, we are told in verse 24 that when the disciples came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter. What is a two drachma tax? Uh, think of drachma like a dime or a quarter. It's, it's a piece of currency. And to, to see the context of what the collectors were collecting for, you need to go back all the way to Exodus when the people of God were first starting out. In Exodus 30, you see the original intent. I've tried to subtly highlight the original intent of this tax. Verse 30, starting in verse 12, you see, when you take the Lord commanding his people, when you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. Jump to verse 15. The rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less than the half shekel when you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. Lastly, verse 16. You shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it to the service of the tent of meeting that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives. Again, I've tried to very subtly highlight the purpose of this tax. At least in part, it was for atonement. The original purpose of the tax was for atonement. But we're talking about Jesus here. What does Hebrews chapter 4 tell us about Jesus in relation to atonement? Three little words, right? Jesus is our high priest. He is not a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Why? Because in every respect, he has been tempted as we are. But there's one giant, crucial difference. He was without sin. And someone without sin does not need atonement. Jesus does not need atonement. Why does that matter? Well, Jesus isn't some exceptional human who somehow found a way to live as you and I live, but without sin, right? Jesus isn't just an exceptional human. When the collectors of the tax ask Peter in verse 24, they ask him, does your teacher not pay the tax? Really what they're asking is, he he pays the tax, right? Because any any patriotic Jew, any, any sort of Jew with any hint of national pride, pays the tax to the temple. You pay the tax, don't you? Peter responds, yeah, of course. And that's what they're expecting. Because any Jew with any sorts of, sort of national pride would. But then Jesus pulls him aside in the next verse. And he says, what do you think, Simon? 
from whom do kings of the earth, rulers of the earth, call them presidents if you want to, from whom do they take the toll? Is it from their sons or from their daughters? Or is from others? Sorry. Simon answers with the obvious answer. It's not from the sons, it's from others, right? It's from others. Kings don't tax their wives or their children. They tax the subjects, the common people. That's why Jesus responds. Then the sons are free, right? But why is he asking this question? Why are these questions here? Okay, the idea, the idea is that the, the kings of the earth have rule over their kingdoms, right? The king of England has rule over England, okay? And they tax the people of England, but they don't tax their families, their closest friends. You give a discount, friends and family discount, right? A guy can own a gym, right? And all the members pay the membership fee. Guess who doesn't? Anyone who's got an in with him, right? What the Bible calls sons and daughters. Now here's the question. The owner of the gym gets to decide the price of the membership fee. Who's the owner of the temple? What human can say, I'm going to set the tax on the temple? None. The ruler of the temple has to set the tax on the temple. The ruler, of course, is God. So Jesus here is hinting at the fact that he's free from the tax So what does that imply? He is the Son of God. And as the Son of God, he doesn't have to pay this tax because he has a relationship with the Father that nobody else has. It's not just because he he didn't sin and he didn't need atonement. It's because of who fundamentally he was. Now that's the background you need. You ready for the good news? Here's the good news. You are also considered sons and daughters of the Most High God, according to God's own words. If, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Romans chapter 8, or it'll be up on the screens behind me. In verse 14, Paul writes these wonderfully sweet words. For all who are led by the Spirit, all are sons, include daughters in there, sons and daughters of God. Because you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And when you don't feel like a son, when you come to worship one week or several weeks, and you get to that portion of our worship where we confess our sins, and you start to really meditate on your sins and your heart and how ugly it is, and, and you can't believe that you did those things this past week or month. And, and you can't believe that even after years of being a Christian, you've fallen back into the same temptations, back into the same sins, back into the same ruts. When you can't believe that you keep doing all of that and you start to doubt whether or not your salvation is genuine, whether or not you are actually a son or a daughter of the king, Paul inspired by the Holy Spirit of Christ, writes these words in verse 16. It is the Spirit himself who bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. 
I'm going to read that again. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You heard it that time. Okay. It is not up to you. It is not up to the sincerity of your heart. And it is not, your status as a child is not determined on how good you were this past week or month or year or decade. Your status as a child of God is done. It is, in a sense, complete. You are as much a child of God as you are of your biological parents. There's nothing you can do to lose that. So you might hear this and think, okay, I'm a child of God, so that means I'm free from paying a temple tax that I've never paid anyway. So what's the point of this? Well, there's a, there's a follow-up question. There's a, hopefully a natural follow-up question. If I'm, also, if I'm free from the temple tax, what else am I free from? The short answer is anything that would control you. Anything that besides God that would control you. Some of, us, some of us work really hard to provide for our families, whether in, in our homes or in our jobs. Some of us work too hard at our jobs because that's where we find our identity. We find our identity in being a parent and being a worker and being an employee. And without that, we feel like we are nothing. Christ has set you free from that by making you a child of God. Some of us make life plans and budgets because we want to be good stewards of all that God has given us. That's awesome. Some of us are so tied to those things because we feel ultimately that it's up to us. It's up to me to make just the right budget and just the right life plan. And that's how my life will succeed. You are free from that, Christian. You are free from that because the Lord is the ultimate provider. The Lord is the one who will ultimately provide for you. But we don't always live in light of this wonderful truth, do we? When I, when I was examining my own life this, this past week in preparation for this, I was reminded of a, a book I read on the Civil War. Um, and in it, there's a, there's a recording of an interview done by a reporter uh, immediately following the Emancipation Proclamation by Abraham Lincoln. And so the reporter asked this man who was a slave after the Emancipation Proclamation was written. She asked this reporter, what are you, or she asked this man who was a slave, he said, what are your thoughts on Abraham Lincoln's proclamation to free all the slaves? The man, she reported that the man looked curious and said, well, I don't know anything about Abraham Lincoln except that he set us free. And I don't know anything about that either. He was proclaimed free, but he was still living as a slave. And so the question for you, Christian, is in what ways are you still proclaimed free, living like a slave? When you're anxious, do, do you find yourself uh, leaning on finances or, or family support or the food that you eat for comfort? In Christ, we are free from that anxiety because you are a child of God. When things go wrong in your life, is it your reflex to lash out in anger or, or shut down or shift the blame? We have to train our reflexes in light of the fact that we have all that we need as a child of God. 
when you are dissatisfied? Do you, do you try to fulfill your desires with friends or success in your workplace? Or do you try to distract yourself with entertainment or, or hobbies? Or do you buy new things and tell yourself for the hundredth time, this, this is what will bring me happiness, my precious. Little children, you, you, are, you are free from those lies in Christ. You are absolutely fully free. He has released you from the slavery of sin that would lead you to believe that anything but Jesus Christ can satisfy. All those things you would do for your children. All all those emotions that rise up in you and make your blood boil when your children are, are hurt. Where did you get that from? All, the, all that good pride that swells up in you when your nieces or your, or your nephews or, or your siblings succeed or do something noteworthy. That, that thing that makes you puff out your chest like, yeah, that's, that's my nephew. Where did we get that from? That comes from our good, good father. And so we must remember that we are children of God as Mufasa told Simba, Remember who you are. You are my son. You are my daughter. And therefore, you are free from the lie that anything but Jesus can fully satisfy you. Yes, amen. That is one truth. But it has a twin. This truth has a twin. When we speak of, of freedom, especially in America, we, we sometimes emphasize freedom from, Right? I'm free from my parents when I move out of the house. I'm free from a boss when I quit my job. I'm free from teachers and homework when I'm on spring break and summer vacation. Right? That's awesome. But freedom from is not nearly as exciting unless you're also free to. Freedom from is not as good unless you have freedom to. I can't tell you how many kids I've spoken to in the midst of summer vacation that are bored out of their minds because three or four weeks in, the, the excitement of not having homework, the thrill of not having to get up in the morning has worn off. And then they look at their lives and they go, well, I could either play this video game for the 10th time or I can go play outside in my backyard for the 20th time or... Because although they're free from, they're not free to drive because they don't have a license. They're not free to go to the movies because they don't have a a job and they don't have their own finances. They're free from, but they're not free to. That is not the case with you, Christian. You are both free from your sins, free from the lies that anything can satisfy you but Jesus Christ. And yet you are also free because of that to give up your rights. Scripture actually goes further in saying that you are a slave to righteousness. And so we are, we're looking at this moment, how we are not only free in Christ, but bound to love. If, you, uh, if you're still in Matthew 17, look at verse 27. In light of all this, Peter and, and Jesus, Jesus being the Son of God, Peter being a Son of God, Jesus says these words in uh, verse 27 of Matthew chapter 17. In light of all this, he says, However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea, 
and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Jesus illustrates the point that though you are free, you are in a sense bound, right? Jesus was completely free from paying this tax. Peter and the rest of the disciples, by trusting Jesus and being sons and daughters of the king, were completely free. And yet, when faced with life's decisions, we, we don't simply exercise our freedom. We also exercise love. We exercise wisdom. Jesus reads the situation and he determines with perfect wisdom that if he and Peter do not, excuse me, do not pay this tax, it would give offense to the collectors. The word there is scandalizo, which sounds a lot like our English word, scandal, right? It would cause a scandal to not pay this. Now, you might be thinking, uh, okay, well, you got to stand for what's right. Absolutely. In matters of right and wrong, Jesus does not budge. Remember, this is the same man who walked into the temple courts and flipped over tables. This isn't some timid man who's afraid of losing a popularity contest. And yet, the twin truth to that is he is also free to let certain things go. He's able to give up his rights as he binds himself to love. When it's a matter of right and wrong, he's, he's firm, unbending. But when it's a matter of indifference, when it's a matter of even correct and not correct, Jesus binds himself to love first and foremost. Uh, let, me, let me illustrate it this way. Uh, if I were to ask you to name an animal associated uh, with freedom, right? You would say free as a bird or a horse. A horse is also free. But a, but a bird, right, is is able to just fly anywhere, right? A bird can, can go up to the highest mountains, to trees. They can fly long distances. They migrate free as a bird or free as a horse. But free, free as a bird, right, is, is what I thought of. So let, let's go with free as a bird. Um, and yet, when you think of a bird, even a bird is limited, right? A bird can't just stay up in the air forever. They eventually have to rest. A bird can't go underwater for any extended period of time. They have to come up for air. A bird can't go up to the tallest mountains because they would suffer from lack of oxygen, just like we would. A bird is not completely free. When, when I think of biblical freedom, I like to think more of a boat. Um, imagine someone is very skilled and able to make you a boat. They just build you a boat and they deliver it to your door. No trailer, no nothing, just the boat. Well, it, it's pretty useless, right? Because if you try to get in it and navigate it to the ocean, you're going to find yourself having a hard time because a boat doesn't come on wheels. It comes on a motor. And so for the boat to be really free to do all the things that it's supposed to do, it needs to be in water. That's where it finds its truest freedom. The waters we have been given, Christian, are that of wisdom and love. When we are navigating the waters of wisdom and love, we are doing what we were created to do. We are functioning properly. We are making decisions well. When we take our freedom to exercise our own desires, that's when we get into trouble as we read uh, in Galatians. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul 
tells us that God sent his son to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And then he goes on in chapter 5 to write this in relation to our adoption. He says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. And everyone said, Amen. Hallelujah. We were called to freedom. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Okay? So what, what do I use my freedom for? How do I navigate what I'm free to do and what I'm free not to do? Here's the guide. Next passage. But through love, that's your guiding principle. Through love, serve one another. Because the entire law, that's a way of describing all of the Old Testament. The entire law is summarized in one word, fulfilled in one statement. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That has to be your guiding principle. Not what are you free to do, not what are my rights. Rather, what is most loving to those around me? Jesus didn't have to pay the tax. He could have stood on his rights and said no. Instead, he laid down his rights in the sake, for the sake of love, to bind himself in love. What Jesus models here is, is what Paul explicitly commands in Romans chapter 14. Paul discusses not whether or not to eat meat, but how to respond to those that disagree with you. And that's an important distinction. So uh, Romans 14, verse 13, he writes, Therefore, in matters of eating meat, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather let us decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. He writes, I know, that's a pretty certain word, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. So Paul, Paul's addressing two types of people. People who know that they are free to eat meat. He even goes on in another passage to say, free to eat meat offered to idols even. This group is correct. You are right. So, if, you know, if, if you really like being right, you would be in this group. Okay. There's this other group who says, mm, I'm going to stick to the Old Testament laws. I, I just feel safer there. I feel more comfortable. I'm not supposed to eat shellfish or a whole lot of other regulations. And so in, instead of keeping track, instead of asking you if you cleaned your hands the right way, instead of asking all these penetrating questions, I'm just going to avoid it altogether and I'm going to eat vegetables. Paul says, okay, there is a right and a wrong group. This group is right. Nothing is unclean in itself. And yet, what does he go on to say? That's not why I'm calling you to stop eating it. I'm calling you to eat, uh, stop eating it because it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. And furthermore, if your brother is grieved by what you eat, what does he write? You are no longer walking in love. You are no longer doing the thing for which you are called to do first and foremost. And then he writes, by what you eat, do not destroy. Strong word. Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. More than exercising your freedom, Christian, you are called to exercise love. This is how Paul addresses a clear issue. There is a correct position here, and yet he doesn't insist upon it. He says, for the sake of love, give up those concerns. Give up your correctness 
for the sake of not destroying your brother. But, but pastor, what if, if they're wrong, shouldn't I correct them through my actions? If someone thinks alcohol is wrong, shouldn't I drink lots of beer in front of them? in order to strike up conversations and point them to the scriptures, right? Shouldn't I do that? What if I have a friend who's a vegan? Shouldn't, shouldn't I invite them to a grill out and serve them a medium rare steak, right? How does Paul, what, what does Paul call that kind of behavior? He calls it destruction. He says, by what you eat, do not destroy not your brother, not your sister, not your fellow man, which would have been enough. Look how he phrases it. Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. We just reminded ourselves of all the affection, all the love, all the tenderness that God has towards us. And that's easy to believe, right? Because we are, in fact, pretty great. We know the intentions of our hearts. We, we know that when people take things the wrong way, we know what we really meant. We know that when people take our actions the wrong way, we know what we intended to do. We know that we had all the right intentions. But when it comes to thinking of someone else, of course mom and dad love me. Duh. It's harder to imagine why they would love my sibling. Why would they love this annoying person? This has to change how we approach all issues. Your freedom in Christ comes because of who you are in him, but your exercise of that freedom has to come as a result of who they are as well. And we're not just talking about Christians here, right? When we are angry or disappointed with our siblings in Christ, we have to ask ourselves, do, do we remember that Jesus loved them enough to die for them? That should be enough to change our actions. But what about unbelievers? What, what happens when, when we're upset with unbelievers? We can remind ourselves that they are made in the image of God. And even more so, we can ask ourselves the question, am I comfortable with this? Am I comfortable behaving this way if this person were to accept Jesus as their savior in a week, in a month? Then we can even look deeper at our own hearts. We can look at our, our own selves. And we can say, well, how does that affect the sins I commit against myself? What, what happens? How do I think of this when, when I am harming myself, either emotionally, psychologically, by telling myself things that aren't true, like I'm worthless, I'm, I'm nothing, I'm no good? You can at the same time remind yourself, you know what, you are... <laughs> Your actions might make you feel like you're worthless, but Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe, thought it was a good idea to live and die and rise again for you. When you, when you do harm to yourself physically, you, you can remind yourself that Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe, thought it was a good idea to come to earth, take on all the things that it means to be human, and then to suffer and be tortured and died for you. There is no greater sense of worth 
Your worth is not in the things that you own. Your worth is not in the abilities that you have or the talents or the things that you're capable of doing, your humor, your good looks, your finances. Your worth is that in Christ, you are made worthy. In Christ, you have value. Christian, this isn't a guilt trip. This is a reminder of the unfathomable love your Savior has for you and how wide and how deep that love should flow into every, every area of your life. In Christ, you are set free from all lies that would find satisfaction in anything else but Him. But there is a twin truth to that truth. You are also set free to give up those rights because you are so loved, because you have everything you need, you don't need anything else from anyone. You don't need validation from your friends, from your coworkers. You don't need finances to be your God. You have everything you need in Christ. So let us leave this place this morning with a renewed sense of who we are in Christ, sons and daughters, and let that truth enable you to carry out its twin that just as Jesus has set you free in love, so now you are bound in love to love others. Pray with me. Thank you for the truth of the gospel, Lord, that sets us free from, from all the lies that we previously believed and still even now cling to. Remind us that we are free. Remind us that there is an amazing love with which you have loved us. When we ask ourselves, how can it be, remind us of the truth of the gospel. It is. As Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. Remind us of that. There is, remind us of the fact that there is nothing more we need to do to become sons and daughters of the King than we already are. Remind us of how much we are loved and let that flow into the deepest recesses of our hearts, Lord. Let that flow into every single one of our actions. We pray this all in the strong name of the one who loved us. Amen.